morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Thursday, April the 14th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The United Nations warns that nearly 8 million people, or two-thirds of South Sudan's population, are likely to face hunger during this year's lean season between May and July. That can only be re- remedied by urgent and sustained humanitarian assistance in order to save lives and to re-establish livelihood so that it can see them through the next harvest season. That is the UN Food and Agriculture Organization representative in South Sudan, Meshak Malo. The Democratic Republic of Congo this month became the seventh country to join the East African community. So what do Congolese think about this move? We have some reactions. We are producing a lot of supplies and now are looking for markets. And studies show that gender disparities in secondary school education continue to hamper girls' education in Africa. We'll have the stories and more coming up right here on Debrick Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the United Nations warns that a record 7.74 million people or two-thirds of South Sudan's population, are likely to face hunger during this year's lean season between May and July. This is the dangerous period between planting and harvesting when food stocks are at their lowest. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Among the millions at risk of hunger are an estimated 87,000 people who will face catastrophic levels of acute food insecurity during the lean period. A UN analysis of the food situation in South Sudan released last week warns many of these people will likely die of starvation. This, says the UN Food and Agriculture Organization representative in South Sudan, Mesha Kamalo, is because they will have run out of coping options to feed themselves and their families. That can only be remedied by urgent and sustained humanitarian assistance in order to save lives and to re-establish livelihood so that it can see them through the next harvest season. Speaking from the capital, Juba, Malo says among those most at risk are some 1.34 million severely malnourished children. He says 676,000 pregnant and lactating women also are expected to be malnourished this year and in need of special nutritional treatment. The key drivers of food insecurity and extreme hunger in South Sudan include climate shocks. The country has experienced three consecutive years of heavy flooding, interspersed with periods of drought. This has badly impacted people's ability to cultivate their land and prevent loss of livestock. Malo says ongoing conflict, high food prices, and poor access to basic services also have contributed to the dire situation in the country. This has been compounded by the low crop production and uh, livestock diseases that have continued to deplete the household coping strategies because of the protracted crisis that have shrunk the income opportunities available in the country. At the heart of this crisis, Malo says, is the lack of peace. South Sudan endured a civil war that officially ended a few years ago, but parts of the country remained wracked with violence. 
The FAO representative says investing in peace will pay huge dividends. It would, he notes, provide people with the space and time to build the resilience needed to prevent households from falling back into a state of severe hunger. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In Ivory Coast, the Prime Minister Patrick Achi tabled his resignation and that of his government on Wednesday as President Alassane Ouattara plans to slim down the size of the cabinet. Ouattara said that he would reduce the government to around 30 ministers from the current 41 with new appointments to be made next week to govern the world's top cocoa producer. Speaking to Reuters, the government spokesperson said that President Ouattara is expected to address a joint session of parliament next week. Amnesty International says Moroccan authorities are harassing and intimidating activists through unfounded criminal investigations and bogus charges in a bid to silence critical voices and clamp down on peaceful activism. Amnesty is calling on authorities in Morocco to immediately and unconditionally stop all interrogations and prosecutions of activists that stem solely on their exercise of their right to freedom of expression. Reporter Angie Omar spoke to Ahmed Bachemsi, Communications Director at Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division. He's also a political science researcher at Stanford University. The Moroccan law, you know, has what they call red lines, which, which means like topics that journalists are supposed not to talk about. And they include broadly, you know, government, the uh, religion, the Islamic religion, and the uh, Moroccan claim over Western Sahara. But these are not like fixed subjects. Sometimes when you just hover around these topics, you can, you can be in trouble. And unfortunately, the cases of Saeed Al-Alami and this gentleman that you mentioned are, are only the latest of the long series of bloggers and commentators who were imprisoned solely for expressing uh, you know, criticism of the state in a peaceful manner. Saeed Al-Alami is a Book of Human Rights activist and member of the collective Fim Moroccan Contre la Detention Politique, or Moroccan Women Against Political Detention, which brings together women human rights defenders and denounces politically motivated detentions. Saida was interrogated at the National Judicial Police Brigade as she was held in police custody for 48 hours before being taken to the Inseba First Innocence Court in Casablanca. The prosecutor Computer interrogated her over her social media posts, including a Facebook post in which she criticized the Director General of Morocco's National Security Directorate and Director of the Surveillance Directorate for sending officers to question her neighbors about her while she was out. How would the violations committed by Moroccan authorities against activists and bloggers violate the international human rights law and the UN Human Rights Committee law to scrutinize and criticize state officials, public figures, the military military or other public institutions. Or basically, criticism of those in power and those in charge is what we call protected speech. I mean, obviously, freedom of speech is the right to say whatever you like, as long as you don't incite clearly to violence or to commit a crime, But and which leaves a lot, a lot of things that, that you have the right to say. But among those things, criticizing rulers is a specifically protected speech. So the case of uh, Mr. Alani and of uh, others 
who were imprisoned because they criticized authorities is a clear cut violation of freedom of speech as internationally guaranteed. I mean, there are uh, some violations, uh, there are some laws that need to be reformed, including regarding women's rights, LGBT rights, some uh, legal procedures that still don't grant detainees their full rights. There are several uh, things that we could talk about. But in terms of uh, violations committed against individuals by police forces, uh, speech trials are quite frequent and freedom of speech is the number one uh, challenge. That was Ahmed Bechemsi, Communications Director at Human Rights Watch, Middle East and North Africa Division, who's speaking to Angie Omer. Daybreak Africa continues. Now, even though more girls than ever before are going to school, studies show that persistent gender disparities in secondary education continue to hamper girls' education in Africa. Education advocates say that across the continent, girls still face a number of barriers to education which need to be urgently addressed if African countries are to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goal number 4, which calls for inclusive and equitable quality education while promoting lifelong learning opportunities for all. It is also part of the African Union's Agenda 2063, which is a commitment to eliminate gender disparities at all levels, including in education. In the last two years, the barriers to education for girls have significantly increased due to the pandemic, with Human Rights Watch research in several African countries showing that child marriage and early pregnancies are key barriers to girls' education. Tanzanian education activist Devota Mle says that mentorship is an important solution to keep girls in school. In the first part of our two-part conversation, Mlay tells me that her organization, Girls' Livelihood and Mentorship Initiative, provides mentorship opportunities for secondary school girls in Tanzania to complete their education and transform their own lives and that of their communities. Mentorship is something that is really new, but it's something that is really, really needed. So uh, having a mentor means having someone who believes uh, in you and your abilities and someone who is uh, willing to work with you through your, you know, your, your journey, your troubles, your, um, the challenges that you're going through as a young person, and someone who is always there to, to really give you the support that you need, the, the moral support that you need, but also to cheer you up when you're really um, achieving some little steps. So having a mentor uh, in, in our context means really having that someone who is, is okay. not always there but you know you can go to all the time and you can you can get that support you need right so let's talk in broader terms about education for girls in tanzania uh some of gov- some government policies have come into focus uh but let me start off by asking you about you know how did the covid 19 pandemic that we're not fully out of uh, uh impact girls education in tanzania yeah, so from my experience, and um, I'm speaking mostly from the program that we do and the girls that we work with, the, the, the COVID-19 had a big, big impact, and especially on the girls that we really work, on, work with. And the first um, biggest impact was um, the families were affected with uh, parents lost their jobs and uh, even business was very low. So the income for the family went really, really low. So uh, what does that mean to a girl who is in school? Uh, that means now um, she needs to be um, focusing on also supporting the family 
to earn that extra income. So if she needs to engage herself more in the economic activities, that means um, effect that comes back to that is, you know, now she can focus on studies, schools were closed, but then um, instead of being home and keep on studying, they, 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 most of them were home and engaging in economic activities. So mm -hmm. the loss of education was like one of the biggest things that happened to the girls because they, they needed to spend their time uh, helping their families. But also we, we, we witnessed increase in violence uh, so, you know, schools uh, most of the time are the safe, safest place to be for a girl, but now girls are at home for like extended period of time. So uh, one of another impact that you've seen was increasing in, in violence uh, for girls uh, during the uh, COVID-19 um, era when the girls were really uh, staying at, uh, at especially, home. Especially during the quarantine times. Now, uh, yes. The government of Tanzania reversed a policy that had banned uh, girls uh, from, you know, adults and mothers from attending school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, thousands of, of girls are now, you know, who were adults and mothers are able to, to have that option to study in public secondary schools. Aside from pregnancy, what contributes to the high dropout of girls, mostly from higher education? Yeah, I mean, uh, aside from pregnancy, which contributes a lot, but we see a massive failure is something that really, really contributes a lot to girls to drop out of school. So because girls have uh, more than uh, just studying. So when they go home, they have chose to, 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 to work on, they, they're expected to be taking care of the rest of the members of the family. So they have very little uh, time to, to study and to revise. So you find that most girls to transit from one class to another because they can't get the grades to take them to the uh, to the transition. So I'll say the second highest is a um, massive failure that mm. uh, makes girls drop out of school. That was Tanzanian education activist Devota Mle. I reached her by phone during her visit to Washington, D.C. Tune in for the second part of our conversation tomorrow right here on Daybreak Africa. Sierra Leone is facing frequent electricity supply problems. The past few weeks have been challenging with continuous outages, disrupting hospitals, businesses and schools, among other key sectors. Now many have resorted to using alternative power supply for their homes and businesses. Eric Kauer has more from Freetown, Sierra Leone. Electricity should be a basic amenity, but remains a luxury for many in Sierra Leone. The World Bank says in 2021, only 23% of Sierra Leoneans had access to electricity, compared with a sub-Saharan average of 30%. Last November, Vice President Dr. Mohamed Jaldejalo visited Ivory Coast with a high-powered delegation to farm up arrangements for the Transco Ivory Coast Sierra Leone Guinea Power Purchase and Transmission Services Agreement countries. The CLSG interconnection line involves the construction of approximately 530 kilometers of power links linking the three nations. However, situation has worsened recently with blackouts overtaking some parts of the West African nation. The Electricity Distribution and Supply Authority last month said the Turkish car power ship, which is one of its sources of power, was experiencing technical challenges. The outages are hitting some key sectors hard. Dr. Fodisise is a district medical officer of the Western Area Urban District, and he says outages make things hard for hospitals. 
He speaks to VOA on how they're coping with the current power outage. Generally, we want electricity supply to be regular, but there are intermittent outages. Despite those outages, we try to ensure that um, services continue to be rendered. Like here, we have a backup power generator. So whenever there is a power outage, uh, we ensure that we fuel the generator and um, we continue delivering our services. But rural areas often rely on solar power. Dr. Sise says medical facilities in rural communities use rechargeable lights when there's power outage. Schools also struggle with power outages. Mutala Karbo is the vice principal at Limount College. He says his school is fortunate in that the neighborhood doesn't often have outages, possibly because it is near a police headquarters. Basically, in terms of uh, fuel scarcity, of recent times, we've had a lot of challenges with uh, running the generator. It's diesel, and you hardly come by diesel around town for the past couple of weeks. So in the event where there is no electricity, you just have to shut down. Students also use electricity to help in their studies. Alpha Amaduba is a pupil of the Wamagrisol Secondary School. He spoke to VOA. It's it's a challenge, like it's a huge challenge. We're diving through into like the technological era and electricity is paramount for those things to actually go by. And candles, um, I think of the past, I'd say. Nowadays, like studying is not just by having your book. Most of us students, we do research on topics that we um, do at school, mostly using our phones or our computers, you know, electronic uh, devices that need electricity. President Julius Madabio is quoted as saying sustainable and affordable energy sits well with Sierra Leone's development needs and development agenda. Last year, the World Bank approved a 50 million grant from the International Development Association to improve access to electricity in the country. For VOA, this is Eric Kawa reporting from Freetown, Sierra Leone. Debrek Africa continues. The Democratic Republic of Congo this month officially became the seventh country to join the East African community. The regional trade bloc, which includes Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, South Sudan, Tanzania, and Uganda, now reaches a quarter of Africa's population stretching from the Indian Ocean to the Atlantic. The 19 million people in the Democratic Republic of Congo will be able to move freely and do businesses in six other African countries. Many Congolese living in Uganda have welcomed the admission of the DRC to the East African community, which is expected to boost socio-economic relations among member states. Reporter Mugume Davis Rwakarenji spoke to some of them and files this report from Kampala, Uganda. Congolese Lumba Music welcomes you as you enter the anti-aging saloon in Ibunga, a Kampala suburb. One of the babas here is Umbro Biamungu. Speaking in colloquial Swahili, Biamungu says he believes that won't be required to pay some $400 for a work permit, a legal requirement for aliens like him to work in Uganda. Says that sometimes they do not have money to pay, but now that DRC has entered the East African community, that is a very good thing. He says he believes every Congolese will not be better. Alpha Fataki 
Edi Congo, businessman in Uganda, says he's also excited that his country has joined the ESC. At times, Fataki says he has had to cancel his trip home for important functions like family meetings, weddings, orphan rights because he doesn't have visa fees. Fataki says Congo citizens have been paying between 50 to 100 dollars for a single or multiple visa to travel in Uganda. You just leave it or maybe you give it time, especially in this, you are just from this pandemic period. So it was really hard. You get life in Uganda, it's a bit hard, and you'd like to cross. And at the same time, they had money for this and LBCD, especially for the visa thing. So it was really hard. DRC becomes the sixth member of the ESC and is expected to expand the regional market to up to 300 million people. DRC President Felixi Kichakedi said last Tuesday, after his country was admitted to the regional bloc, that his country was looking forward to increased intra-ESC trade and the reduction of tension amongst ESC partner states. Johnny Mulimba is Uganda's state minister for regional cooperation. He says the admission of DRC would benefit peoples of the region. We are producing a lot of supplies and now are looking for markets. When we integrate with the people of Congo and add on another 90 million people, we are adding on a market. Other members of the ESC are Burundi, Kenya, Tanzania, South Sudan, and Uganda. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarinjini Kampala, Uganda. At the start of this year, Botswana celebrated the procurement of millions of COVID-19 vaccines, but the Southern African country is on the verge of discarding expiring doses. Most of the vaccines will expire this month, April, as the country faces considerable vaccine hesitancy. From Habarone, Botswana, reporter Mkhondizi Dube has more on the story. By the end of January, Botswana had more than 3 million vaccine doses in stock thanks to a successful procurement program. But as fewer people step forward to get the jab, some vaccines have expired with more due to be discarded in April. Minister of Health Edwin Tikolodi told Parliament about the problem. We have expired drugs. AstraZeneca has expired, but for now I don't have amount and the cost. People are reluctant to take the booster dose. We plead with you as parliamentarians to urge the population to vaccinate. Despite some public reluctance to take the jab, Dikolodi says the country is on course to meet World Health Organization WHO vaccination targets. With more than 60% of our entire population having received at least first dose of COVID-19 vaccination, we remain one of the most vaccinated countries in the world and one of the four countries in Africa that met the WHO target of reaching 40% vaccination threshold by December 2021. We are well on course, Mr. Speaker, to reach the new 70% target set by WHO for countries to have reached by mid-2022. The Minister of Health spokesperson Christopher Nyanga says 29,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine already have expired. Nyanga calls on the population to vaccinate before more doses expire. This comes amid concerns people are dropping their guard since COVID-19 cases and deaths have declined sharply over the months. The ministry encourages all those eligible to take up boosters in order to keep their immunity against COVID-19 high. Members of the public are further encouraged to keep following all COVID-19 protocols since the pandemic is still with us.
Nyanga says as of March 25, the country still had 2.9 million unused doses of the vaccine. Since the pandemic broke out, Botswana has spent more than $60 million procuring almost 6.5 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines to vaccinate its nearly 2.5 million people. For VOA, this is Mkondisi Dube in Haburuni, Botswana. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, remember to visit our website at voanews.com. You can also connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, we are on Facebook, Instagram, we are also on YouTube. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Join me, Heidi Adams, on the next Straight Talk Africa. I'll have an exclusive interview with Wamkele Mene, Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, set to be the world's largest free trade zone. Plus, a new report reveals a link between the media's portrayals of Africa on the next Straight Talk Africa. This Wednesday at 18.30 UTC.